Attention musicians of all levels. It's not always easy picking out a song by ear. Sometimes you need a little help. Well, I have the app for you. Whether you're a professional musician or a beginner, Ultimate Guitar is an amazing app. For just $2.99, you get the chords and tabs on guitar, bass, or ukulele for over a million songs. They're all available at your fingertips. You also get tools like a tuner, metronome, chord library, lessons, videos, and more. You can find out any song you want. It also has like transpose button. It has auto scroll that you can change the speed to so you can play along with the song. A lot of the songs have the lyrics there so you can sing along with them. Ultimate Guitar is an amazing app. Just go to ultimateguitar.com or download the app to your phone today and start playing. Start playing any song you want. Ultimate Guitar, that's the place for you. Let's get down. Hey gang, I want to make a quick announcement. Since we started this podcast in 2011, only the last 20 episodes have been available on the streaming services. You had to go back to the Podbean app or to the website, howdidigethere.podbean.com to access past the 20, last 20 episodes. Well, gang, big surprise. As of now, the last 100 episodes are available on all streaming sites. That includes the From the Vault episodes. All of the episodes, the last 100 episodes from this episode back are available now on all streaming services, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, TuneIn, Overcast. Go there. Whichever one you're subscribed to, whichever one you use the most, go subscribe to How Did I Get Here. Follow us, rate us, leave us a comment if you can, and, uh, and check out the episodes, man. Get out there and enjoy the last 100 episodes of How Did I Get Here on your favorite streaming services. Let's get down. Open my vault? Open your vault. Once I open the vault, it ceases to be a vault. You have no choice. I the vault. Hello, I'm Johnny. I'm your host. Welcome to another episode of How Did I Get Here from the Vault, where we reach back into our vault of well over a thousand episodes, pull one out, shine it up, and re-release it just in case you missed it or in case you want to hear it again. Gang, today is a very special show. Very special show. And it was in person, too. Today, we go back to episode 1,226 that came out on... uh, November 22nd, 2022, with legendary bass player from the band Living Color, Doug Wimbish. Man, he came over to my apartment, thanks to my friends Alex Vallejo and Bevis Griffin, who set this whole thing up and brought him over, came over, sat down. We had an amazing conversation about his journey as a musician, like starting out as the house bass player at Sugar Hill Records uh, and playing on such great legendary songs like White Lines by Grandmaster Flash. Uh, Playing on records by the Rolling Stones, Mick Jagger, Seal, Madonna, Al Green, James Brown, Little Steven, and so many more. His decades in living color, his music mentorship nonprofit, Wimbash, which he was here promoting, and we had a great talk about it. I want to thank Bevis and Alex for bringing him by, because that was a really special conversation. It came out like, uh, I believe it came out like the week of Thanksgiving in 2022. Great conversation. I'm going to drop you in, gang in the intro where I'm going through his discography and all the records that he's played on, because I believe that that adds to the gravity of this conversation. I named some of these names like uh, Madonna, Seal, the Rolling Stones, but there's so many other ones that are of that level that are going to blow your mind. So uh, I guess without further ado, I'm going to drop you in 
to this uh, to this intro, and then you'll hear my conversation with the amazing Doug Wimbish from episode 1,226, all right? Let's get down. How did I get here from the vault? And then Sylvia Robinson, who was the, who was the A&R person and co-owner and co-founder of Sugar Hill Records, who put out, uh, you know, the Sugar Hill Gang, who put out The Message, who put out White Lines, who put out uh, Africa Bombada's Planet Rock and all this stuff, and who was coincidentally inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame this weekend. So she was on that thing. Anyway, Sylvia Robinson from Sugar Hill Records ended up bringing him on in the late 70s as like the house bass player. And he ended up playing on songs like White Lines by Grandmaster Flash and Planet Rock by Africa Bombada. Unbelievable, right? So then he ended up playing on all these different records by all these amazing bands. He played with Jeff Beck. He played on Mick Jagger's solo album, Primitive Cool. He played with Little Steven, Michael Bolton, uh, James Brown. He played on the first Seal album with Crazy on it. That's him playing bass on there. He played with Ron Wood. He played on uh, Madonna. He played on Annie Lennox's album. He played with Joe Satriani, Nitzareb, Carly Simon, who just got inducted in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Al Green, Puff Daddy. Michael Hutchins from NXS, Herb Alpert. He played on a Depeche Mode record and on a KMFDM record, which KMF, KMFDM stands for Kill Motherfucking Depeche Mode. So not only did he play on a Depeche Mode record, but he played on a Kill Motherfucking Depeche Mode record, which is unbelievable and unheard of. Anyway, I want to thank Alex and my friend Bevis Griffin for bringing uh, the great Doug Wimbish over to my house to sit down and talk to me. There's a couple times in the conversation where I'm just like, I can't believe you're here in my house. The other thing is, Alex, at one point, he was hanging out on the couch. He really, he was compelled. He had to say something. I don't blame him. He got up and walks over and kind of talks. So if you hear a guy kind of mumbling in the background, I'm repeating what he's saying. But that's Alex, because he came up and started saying stuff out of excitement. It was so great to have Doug here. And I'm so glad that he's doing stuff like with School of Rock and that he's out there doing this mentoring thing. It was very inspiring and made me feel really good about the work that I'm doing with Austin Music Foundation and the Artist Development Program. So, uh... I guess without further ado, here is me and legendary bass player Doug Wimbish from Living Color and all of the great music out there. You can find him at DougWimbish.com. You can find uh, his Wimbash, which is his his nonprofit that he's out there helping kids get involved with that. Wimbash.org.org. And you can find Living Color at LivingColor.com. They're still out there. They're still doing stuff. They've been playing. They just got, uh, they got honored at the New York City Musicians Collective a few weeks ago. They're still out there. They're doing it, baby. (laughs) Get out there and check it out. And please, without further ado, enjoy my conversation with this legendary musician, Doug Wimbish. Let's get down. And during the few moments that we have left, we want to talk right down to earth in a language that everybody here can easily understand. His knows he's done his homework. Anyway, Johnny, it's a pleasure, man. It's a pleasure to be here. It's a pleasure to be talking to you. I'm really excited. I was stoked when Alex told me uh, you had a good trip then so far to Austin. It's been great. Yeah. You know, it's it's just it's it's you know it's been a great trip, and I'll explain it all to you when we we'll just talk all. Are you recording? Yeah. Oh no no, it's been a great trip, man. <laughs> <laughs> it's been. 
It's been really good. It's thankful it all worked out. Yeah? Yeah. So uh, this is a great thing that I found out about you is uh, you're like, I mean, let's start here. You're here because you came down for School of Rock. That's correct. And you're a mentor in music. Uh-huh. Like you have turned around because you were raised by people in a music scene. And as Alex and I were. Yeah. And, uh, and now you're, you've turned around and you've been giving back as Alex and I do as well. And so we, we have this, this beautiful thing in common that we're appreciative of where we came from and who got us where we are and that we need to keep this thing going. You know, I can't agree with you more. It's like, look, we're all fortunate to have some, let's just say, inspiration happening as we were coming up. It could have been some folks that might have been older than us or whatever. It could be the same age. But we were able to have an opportunity to be around things that inspired us. We were able to have that opportunity to be around people that motivated us. You know, and I, that's least I was. You know, I, you know, I, I'd be around people that... I could have a conversation with and then the next day I'm running over to my base to pick it up to play as opposed to just walking over to it. Yeah. You know, it's these things, these sparks that, that took place in my life. I'm thankful from the elders that I met coming up. And then now here I am like, you know, circling the sun a few times and I'm thankful to be able to be here and travel and go to now I'm in Austin, Texas, you know, having yeah. a conversation with you and hanging out with Bev and, and, and 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 everything is just is cozy. So now is the time when I can actually um, look back and see how I was influenced by somebody, and how and what can I do to help influence some of these this next generation. Yeah, yeah. You know, simple as that. It's not rocket science with me. So I mean, that's yeah. where it starts. You know, and I'm, now I'm here and. You know, and now we're going to see what we, we're going to just keep moving the down, keep moving, moving forward and having, um, I've met a lot of folks, had some great conversations <laughs> coming have, here. Yeah. It's been a good, Alex has taken me around and I've never been more than 100 feet away from good food. Yeah. There's food everywhere in, in, in Austin. Yeah. Met some beautiful people and uh, I look forward to, you know, continuing this, this day playing with the kid, with the kids at the school of rock and coming back. Yeah. That's great. Um, uh, you live in Hartford? I'm from Hartford. I'm from Bloomfield, Connecticut, but uh, yeah, pretty much I'm in Hartford right now. What is it about Connecticut that keeps you, like... Family. Yeah? Yeah. Like, yeah. Gen- like when you grew up there, you stayed there because your parents were there and stuff? No. Oh, no. When no. I was growing up, I couldn't wait to get out of Hartford. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, get me out of here. <laughs> I couldn't wait to get out of Bloomfield. I, no, you know, it was, you know, but when I look back, you know... Um, it, I was lucky to have an older brother and older sister that were able to enlighten me to music and and take me around with them to see concerts. I was, you know, my mother and my father, I was fortunate to grow up in a house with a basement mm-hmm. and be able to go down there and make noise and plug in amplifiers and blow fuses in the house, yeah. stuff like that, you know. I was f- very lucky to have family from on my mother's side that was in the Bahamas, mm-hmm. Nassau. So my mom would save up money and for a couple of summers and when I was maybe twelve or thirteen I would spend summers in the Bahamas. And that was eye opening and a total experience because yeah. I was in another environment and I'm you know, Nassau, funky Nassau, so many bands, so much music. 
that really changed my life. Um, but why Hartford? I mean, you know, the, the, why am I there now? It's just things come full circle. To back it up, when I was coming up, there were so many bands that were that were performing, um, that were local, that were there. They were my heroes, and I grew up in the soul era. So every band that had a, was named, they had a soul in their name. Right. <laughs> Tony Bowens and the Soul Choppers, the Soul Premiers, Barry and the Soul Set, the Chocolate Soul Machine, Soul Soul Soul. So I had the opportunity to see all these great self-contained bands, you know, a couple of horns, singer, drummer, two guitars, bass, percussion player, everybody's doing steps, that whole not that whole vibe. Yeah, yeah. And growing up at a at a great period where in, in where there was great music that was being played on on the radio in Hartford. Hartford had the sec- has the second largest West Indian population next to Brooklyn at, oh, really? at that time. Okay. It's a good melting pot. Great um Great radio stations, uh, Trinity College, University of Hartford. So they were playing some really good music, uh, you know, that I was able to listen to coming up from AM, transitioning from AM radio to finally being able to hear like really good stuff in stereo and having some deeds from DJs that were playing music that I liked when I was at that, when I was at like maybe the age of 15 up, being able to really start to discover more music from you know, the records my sister and brother were bringing to the house and also just local radio. Yeah. You know, it was a lot of, it was a great time. And then seeing all the bands that were happening and it was, it was good. So why Hartford? Because it had family. I had friends. It was, um, there was a, again, a lot of great music. And also there were elders that came to Hartford that I was able to meet by way of, uh, Jackie McLean, famous late great jazz saxophone player relocated from Harlem to Hartford, Connecticut and set up the place, an organization called the Artist Collective. It was there that I was able to embrace and work with folks that were from out of town, different artists, singers, dancers, and singers and uh, players and so on and so forth. And I met a, what I, a few elders, a few folks from Ohio that had found their way to Connecticut. Yeah. And um, and meeting Skip McDonald, who was from Dayton, Ohio, and Otha Stokes from Dayton, Harold Sargent from Cincinnati, they were all a lot, a lot older than me, and they took me under their wings when I was 17, and then we formed a band, and that band became Wood, Brass, and Steel in 1975. And then I was introduced to Sylvia Robinson at that time, yeah. who was, uh, her and her husband owned All Platinum Records, and Sylvia was uh, an artist herself, starting off with Mickey and Sylvia, Mickey Baker, the great jazz guitar player. Uh-huh. And then they recorded a song, Love is Strange, which was the most played song in America until the Beatles came. Wow. So there's a lot of history that I, that I was able to be to, to witness and see. So when I met Sylvia, it was like meeting, uh, you know, just almost like this goddess, you know, because she, yeah. you know, she really had game and she was... She knew how to make records, and she took a shining to me because I was a young kid around a lot of elders. Um, that gave me the opportunity to, um, with Wood, Brass, and Steel, to start recording at a very, you know, early. And she wanted me to be on the, her recordings. She was like, I want Doug to play on my records and stuff. So that was a big thing for me. Uh, and, you know, fast forward from 75, I started recording with, you know, the likes of um, Etta James and Solomon Burke because Sylvia, the All Platinum Records had bought the chess catalog. 
Wow. And uh, things people don't know. Then Jack McDuff recorded with him and other artists, R&B artists. So I was fortunate to have that training from 1974 to 1979. Again, we're still based in Hartford. We're driving back and forth almost daily, 120 miles there and back from Hartford, Connecticut to Inglewood, New Jersey to record and to be a part of this, you know, of, you know, that was where an opportunity existed for us. So, yeah. So Hartford was able to give, give me that, um, that stable route. And also then, then also it was like, how can I get out of Hartford? I'd like to move to New York and be there more. So, um, there was, you know, obviously there's challenges, but eventually, um, you know, I found my way into into New York City, and uh, started working in New York um, while I was still doing stuff at All Platinum Records. Like in 1978, started going to New York more with the elders and staying with different folks and working with different people. Then I ended up working with an artist by the name of uh, Music, the Disco Days, yeah. Push Push in the Bush. And it was the same That's, rhythm section. I, I was when I was a little kid. My uncle and I used to sing that to each other. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. Right? <laughs> so just kind of boiling it all down a little bit, but um, you know, because it's look, it's all the journeys that you take. It's the people that you meet. You meet somebody here. Somebody knows somebody in New York. Then next thing you know, you end up in New York. And the next thing you know, that person says, "Well, hey, go over and meet Joe and Sylvia in New Jersey." So it's just it's all about the connections, and you follow it. So. Uh, within you know now here we are in 1979 and then then rapper's delight is recorded and the next thing you know sylvia robinson is again reaching out to skip mcdonald and myself and then we found you know keith leblanc had just joined the fold a few months earlier next thing you know boom bam the whole sugar hill explosion started how old were you when that when that Sugar Hill? Okay, happened? so that must have been that was in 1979. So I was 22, about to turn 23. Okay, so you were you were like open minded enough to because I know that there was just across the board, like when hip hop came out and rap music started happening, there was a that's not music, you know, there was a movement of like both from African Americans and white people, like just like that's not the music that we 100. percent Yeah, yeah, they're not no one's singing. Yeah, one hundred percent. because people thought it was a novelty, right? There was just like these, these. Okay, first of all, okay, you're right, Johnny. Because see, we were players, mm-hmm. and Skip and, and and the guys that I was working with, they could they they played their asses off. They're excellent musicians. So with Wood Brass and Steel, people knew the band, and we, you know we you know we we cut some really some really great music. So they're wondering, why are you playing that music yeah. when we know you have the skills to do something that we like more that we prefer something with expensive chords and yeah, like, yeah play yeah, that yeah. flat five yeah, you, know what I mean? yeah. And, you know and you know because again you had bands like from earth wind and fire to a return to forever to you know there was a diversity of music that was happening and we absorbed all of that from funkadelic to santana to Mandrill, to, uh, you know, the Fannie All-Stars, to Bob Marley. So there was a wide variety of music that we played and could have, you know, um, gone in many different directions. But we're trying to eat, you know. And I was a young dad. I had my first child when I was 19. Oh, wow. So the whole vibe was trying to, I'm still growing up and I'm still trying to, you know, find a way to, 
you know, raise a, raise a, raise my daughter, have a family, you know, and still and eat, you know. So my decisions were based on um, being around folks that that knew how to do that, you know, that they were they could go out and they were hunters and gatherers, you yeah. know. And so there was things that I had to do that were very real. That being said, it also gave me some um, clarity of what the decisions that I need to make. So now if somebody's offering me a job and I'm able to get paid to do something and there's some consistent work going on, I'm not going to turn it down based on what somebody else thinks. It's not, you know, I got Pampers and Infamil to get, you know, so it basically there's that reality. Okay. Yeah. But you know, um, but there was enough work. I found enough work. I worked a lot working in night and after hours clubs and doing gigs and, you know, off with music and so and so. When Sugar Hill happened, it was an explosion. So it was almost like we went to Sugar Hill after taking a little bit of a hiatus from all platinum records. It's the same folks, Sylvia Robinson, all platinum, yeah. Joe and Sylvia Robinson, it's all the same. Then they started Sugar Hill off of one record. So when they called us to come down, it was a little hesitant, but I was but Sylvia was so such a kind of like, you know, almost like Almost like a mom, she could give you. She could. She could talk to you in a way where it was comforting yeah. and kind of and, and kind of hypnotic. Oh, Doug, come on down. I really need you. We got something hot here. It's hotter than hotcakes. And you know there was so there was a certain. I was connected to Sylvia in a certain way. You know, and she she had Sylvia had game. You know, she 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 was extremely talented. She could smell a hit. She had vision, too. She had I mean, vision. vision. Like, she was going for something that wasn't... I mean, culturally, in New York, that scene was happening. But, like, outside of that city, there was no... Well, that's it. You know, it was. It, it, it had been happening since 1973. Right. The, the, the hip-hop music and rap. But, but it was when Joey Robinson was able to take her his mom to see... DJ Starsky perform at, you know, probably was either at Harlem World or he had a residency at the Apollo is when the light went off for Sylvia. So then she was, she could, she could see it. So then she said to me, she was like, you know what? I actually, I could do something with this. I could make something happen. Yeah. This, you know, so when Rapper's Delight was recorded, originally she was, it was Wonder My Guy and Hank and there were, all three of them were auditioning. It was only going to be one. She only wanted right, to have one right. person yeah. to do it. Well, Guy and Mike came as a team, but Hank, but Hank was by himself. But anyway, she decided to put them all together, and it worked. She liked Hank's voice. She liked everything. And then when the record was recorded, it just freaking blew up. So it was. It happened so quick that you know that it was. You you couldn't press it quick enough. You know. So and then people like. Frankie Crocker at first from WBLS, he didn't want to play the record on BLS at first. It was you had Mr. Magic Hour that would that might have played it, but as far as in, that was a special program. But as far as for heavy rotation, Frankie didn't want. You know there was some there was some there was some pushback. Yeah. But he, but you know that all changes when you have people that of influence that are, that will tell you no, you're going to play this record. <laughs> you know so yeah. it kind of you know those are the days of of. Um, Kind of like, uh, you know, payola and right. uh, and everything else was going down. So that all being said and done, the record got played and it became an instant smash. Yeah. Is that my phone? Yeah. It became an instant smash. No, it's mine. No, it's not. Okay. 
And, um, and you know, next thing you know, that's one that became one of the largest selling 12 inches of all time. Rapper's Delight. Um, and what, like that song changed, I mean, you know, culturally it changed so much. Like, I mean, I remember being a kid, like in the suburbs of Houston when that came out in my planned community (laughs) and, and there's a bunch of kids talking about they don't want to go to someone's house because the chicken tastes like wood and stuff like just shit that we didn't even know about you know what i mean it was like it was just a phenomenon it was just something that the world hadn't really heard before like that with a with a with the chic good times backing track and just rappers going into it for like 13 minutes the thing that really took place was now okay sylvia being the woman that she is and ha- and having that ear for for a hit you know she knew how to make records so that blows up now what's the next move she's going to be able to do she needed to be able to have a band to back the the artist up right because those records were all they they were recorded with live musicians right so myself again wood brass and steel rhythm section with keith leblanc was called in and then from that day I met the the day Sylvia had us come down to all to Sugar Hill well all platinum records that almost like instantly we started working with the Sugar Hill gang like the two days later we're in the, we're we're doing a show with them at Harlem World I mean it happened that fast right and then fast forward we went right in the studio and started recording what was going to be that first Sugar Hill album and then fortunately for us George Clinton took a shining to the to the the whole to whole, what was happening, and he invited the Sugar Hill Gang to be on be a part of this uh, knee deep tour that he had happening in 1979. So we opened up for the for Parliament Funkadelic oh. from um, I think the first gig was like October 31st, 1979, to like about December 15th. I can remember it. Uh, in, in Nashville at first and then in Chicago on December 15th, 1979. And that changed everything for that brought hip hop to the, that brought the rap music to Parliament Funkadelic's world. We're playing an only sold out Coliseum. So it's yeah. 20,000 folks plus a night. Yeah. Even some of the folks in George Clinton's orbit hadn't even heard of hip hop or right, rap right. music. They were in their own orbit. So, it it really it was an explosion, but at the same time, the Sugar Hill Gang weren't the original. In it to other rappers, they weren't like your original rappers. To you know, compared to like Grandmaster Flash, the Funky Four, right. the Crash Crew, right. Spoonie G, Treacherous Three, yeah. you know, and so on and so forth. So there was the they were just the the chosen ones to be able to find you know be in the right place at the right time with sylvia robinson things happen sylvia knew how to get records out real quick and that was the explosion but now you have folks that are like in the bronx and like well hang on a minute i've been trying to make a record for a while and get and get you know and and, and i did they've you know they've made some head you know some headway they were able to make records with bobby robinson's label and stuff long story short all of those artists ended up coming over to Sugar Hill, Grandmaster Flash, and then we, then we, then the sequence was discovered in, in, um, in uh, Columbia, South Carolina. So before you know it, if you think about this, Sugar Hill Records at one point had all the major rap artists in the world under one roof. Jesus, think yeah, about they it. did, yeah, they did. They had all every major rap artist 
that was happening at that time right under one label and yes insane is it but anyway that was what took place with sugar hill and the rest is is history so was i mean does that just work like almost every day for you yes like that's you were just either doing gigs with somebody or in the studio recording with somebody it was it was both when when the sugar hill era took place we toured nonstop. Plus, we were the house band. We were recording right. for everybody, so right. we were recording um, everything for Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five, for the Funky Four Plus One, for Sequence, Funk You Up, you know, the Message, White Lines for Grandmaster Flash, all the songs the core band recorded. So that so when we weren't in the studio, we were on the road with the Sugar Hill Gang, yeah. and then basically the Sugar Hill Gang was the first rap act to take. You know, we were the first ones to take rap abroad yeah. and go to Europe and go to France and England and Germany and places like that in 1980. So it was nonstop work from 1979. It didn't stop until about 1983 or 80, maybe 84, constant work. Right. And then also they had, again, they had acquired the chess catalog. So, and then other artists started coming back to the label. So we're recording with, again, like Felipe Wynn or Harry Ray from The Moments or Jack McDuff or Candy Staten. So there was an R&B vibe that was happening as well. Plus, Sylvia was putting out some, some records as well. And it was great because, you know, we'd cut. There was an arranger, Jigs Chase. So, you know, we're one day, you know, we're cutting the rhythm tracks and the next day the strings are coming in and the horns. So it was a great experience to just watch how records were yeah. were built. And after a while, you just got so used to, you know, knocking them out. It was like a factory. We could cut a record on, we would cut a record on, here's how things would happen. We might go to like um, see Grandmaster Flash play at a club. Sylvia, myself, and some other folks might go see Flash play. We'd flash replay some grooves. It could be a 30-second groove or whatever. And, and I can kind of remember some of the things that were going on. Yeah. On Monday, we go back to the studio. Flash would bring his, his turntable there. And it was like, what was that song you were playing that kind of had almost like, almost like a dual Diablo kind of vibe going on? He'd play Apache or play some of these other things. Right. So then at that particular point... We would sit down and flash or play the songs, and then we had our ranger, Jake Chase, and then he would write out some parts. You know, he started to structure some, uh, just from one groove, we'd, st- we'd start to structure how to take that one groove, add another section, do some intros, and do some breaks. And it was really bass heavy at that time. Yeah. Very bass heavy. So that's how things were done. So, say on a Monday, we'd come up with a structure of the song and maybe Melly Mel might have been in there, right? You know, coming up with some lyrics while we're, while the band's recording. And then the, so then the next day we record the track by Tuesday, by, by Tuesday evening, Mel already had some lyrics or whatever to put down by Wednesday. The, the, the raps are going down on the song and maybe even before then, while they're still getting the raps together, Jigs might've wrote out a, a, a horn arrangement or, or whatever. Things were happening fast. Long story short, yeah. we, could cut a, we could start a song on Monday, and then by Thursday, it was already in play. They had, they had their own cutter at, at, all, at Sugar Hill, so they could make a test pressing. So by Thursday evening, Mr. Magic would come from uh, uh, the DJ from New York, would come over to see Joe. He'd give him an acetate of, one, of what we just did, fresh. 
Mr. You can only play it like three or four times. Yeah, yeah. Mr. Magic would play it on Mr. Magic Hour on yeah. Friday. Yeah. I could hear what we did driving back home from Inglewood, New Jersey to Hartford, Connecticut on the radio while I'm going back to Hartford on Friday. That's how quick records were done. That's it hit so the street awesome. quick. How exciting. It was very exciting. And that happened a lot. So Sylvia had, being an independent record label, they had the opportunity to get things done quickly. And Joe knew how to, you know, work the DJs. And he had different, he had different DJs in, 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 um, in the country. He had Butterball in Philadelphia, Jim Gates in East St. Louis. You know, he had his mates out in California. So they had their own network of being able to go, you know what, I got something hot. I'm going to send you this test pressing or come out here and I'll give it to you and you go out and play it. So they already, it was tested in the studio. It was, test, it was tested on the dance floor first. Flash is playing something. What's getting people up? What's getting people to move? That groove, that groove, get that groove. Let's cut that on Monday. It wasn't rocket science. It was just, you just had to watch. Yeah. That was the formula. Um, that's, it's phenomenal. For those, for those guys out there, I don't know if, you, if you've seen it. You don't need to see it. But, but there's a Hip Hop Evolution series on, on, on Netflix. Saw some of it. Yeah, there's that probably that episode that talks about that era. Yeah, there's a there's there's, there's, there's a lot of fathers of that music. There. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, there's it's real because see, we're not the architects, we're the recipients. We were the you know, hip hop came into my world really like in 1978, 19 you know, because I I you know I was in the Bronx a lot, so I'd see I see parties happening right in the friggin' park, right? You know, and um, music is music, man. I mean, if something's grooving, I'm like. I'm digging it. Yeah. And they're playing all the grooves that I like to play. So all those rhythms yeah. are like, you know, bass heavy grooves, you know, yeah. and that's, I'm, you know, I'm like, that's right up my alley. Yeah. So um, I just kind of, you know, morphed with it. And now here you got stuff that had already been out since 1973 coming from like Cool Herc and, you know, the, the, some of the, the real originators. Yeah. And all of that's coming from Jamaica. All of those, a lot of those folks have, you know, ties to the West Indian from big sound systems and stuff. So it's like, right. where's the roots at? It goes, it keeps going, keeps traveling around this planet. Yeah, yeah. I've, I went to some uh, a killer party when I was in Jamaica on the beach. That local oh, guy took us to. Fun. That was like the speakers on the beach and the whole like, what up, what up, what up? You're gonna make it, make it, make it. <laughs> it's fucking awesome. Um, so wait, so how did you end up like in London? Didn't you end up in London like in the early 80s? I did. So the um, Sugar Hill era kind of, f you know, fizzled down a little bit. Like in 1983, they started seeing some signs. Then I moved to, started doing work at Philly International in Philadelphia with Skip and I. And there was, you know, I was cutting with the, OJ's and Harold yeah. Melvin and the Blue Notes, working with Gene McFadden, Fadden, the great producer, Bunny Siegler, another great producer. So there was, you know, that was a very exciting period as well. And a lot of those folks I had met even at Sugar Hill, some Bunny in particular. So now um, we start going over. the. Now we're go heading over the river back to New York. So um, Keith LeBlanc, the drummer, had hooked up with uh, Marshall Chess and Tom Silverman and did a record by the name of Malcolm X No Sellout, which came out. It was Malcolm X's speeches, and then Keith put a beat on it and put some other stuff, but it became a bit of a, it became, it, it got some play and also had a little bit of controversy connected to it. So anyway, Tom Silverman put that record out, Tommy Boy Records. Oh, yeah. So yeah. that was a spark that took place. 
then Tommy Boy was, well, Keith was like, hey, I'm working with Skip and Doug, you know, why don't we, um, maybe if there's some other tracks and some other artists you want us to work with, you know, we'll get the rhythm section and we'll knock some stuff out. So we did. So one of the first projects we did was working with um, Africa Bambata yeah. and doing some, some, you know, rhythm tracks with him that he ended up using on one of his albums. And then we did a song with Africa Bambata and James Brown song called unity which was uh, we were able to all be writers on it and, and how it was, phenomenal man yeah and it was like that was the first record that had like unity part one two three four five six seven eight nine and we were like we said you know maybe we can register each one of those songs as a as each one of those versions as a separate song and we did and that's one of the first time that's one of the first songs where you cut one song but you have a bunch of different versions different bass lines and you register each song as a separate song, oh, as wow. opposed to just having like one song being remixed and it still being you know the original. Is um, there a benefit to that? Or yeah, you got eight. You got he got eight songs compared to one. You okay, know? okay. So basically, we register. You know, every time that song got played, um, or each version, it's like you know now I'm I have eight songs that are now in my in my BMI catalog in my in my publishing. Okay, stuff okay, like yeah. So it's just economically, yes. Yeah. Um, Okay, so now also the Force MDs was another band that was that came out and we ended up recording their first record, which which blew up. So that was good. So also Tom Silverman and uh, and and Ricky Ducker and um, Joel Weber star, were the creators of the New Music Seminar, which okay. was like the almost like the precursor to South by Southwest. Yeah, yeah. It was like the blueprint to, you know, that. It was the first... The CMJ Festival, too, right? CMJ, yeah, yeah, everybody yeah. kind of bit off of the New Music Seminar. Yeah. Everything came after yeah. from that point. So that was a big thing. And that brought together a lot of different artists from across the world and new ideas and, and, and diff, you know, f f musicians flocked to be able to kind of get together, meet different folks. And it wasn't on this mainstream record label vibe it was a lot of independent indie yeah. people that were trying to get into business you know indie record labels from abroad from different places and bringing in different producers so you can have producer panels and talk about you know you know the the records that they're making which might be mainstream records so yeah. long story short um we had just recorded the unity it came out with africa bambada and james brown so that was a big thing james brown is at the new music seminar He's performing. We're performing with Africa Bambada, and we and and there was the producer panel had um, Trevor Horn, mm -hmm. Naj Nile Rogers, and they invited Adrian Sherwood over. How did Adrian get connected to him? Because there was a band by the name of Akabu, which is an artist that Adrian worked with, and Ricky Dutka, one of the guys, the founders of the New Music Seminar, was a real reggae head, knew of Adrian. Found his way, found a way to get that one single, some kind of way that they heard a single and they were like, "We want to put this out." Yeah. So they, they, Tommy Boy Records puts out an art, a band by the puts out the record and it's uh, by Akabu. That started the conversation. So now it's like, let's get Adrian over here to be a part of the producers panel. So, Mark Stewart from the pop group in the UK and he's from Bristol, so he's hooked up with like Tricky and Massive Attack and all those guys. He's like the Bristol Godfather. Right. He's working with Adrian at that time. He had a group that he started called Mark Stewart and the Mafia. So long story short, Mark's got his ear to the ground. He's really, he's a hip hop head. So 
Adrian doesn't isn't familiar with with the three of us and the work that we did at all at Sugar Hill and what in other places. So Mark Stewart is like Adrian, you're going to the New Music Sem- Seminar. Find Keith, Skip, and Doug and bring them back over here to the UK so we can do some music with them. So we met Adrian, and it was it was like you know it was like it was like just. It's just it's like a spark that's jumped off. You know, from the time we met, we just hung out 24 hours, 48 hours, hanging in New York and just having a blast and stuff. And we just really hit it off. So then he's like, I got, I got to get you guys over to the UK. So at that particular point, Adrian was producing, oh, the um, uh, Al Jorgensen's uh, ministry. Um, they were doing a Twitch, okay. record Twitch. So he got Keith to come over to do some programming for the first week and then followed by Skip and I to come over and do some and, and the, put some guitars and bass on it. And that's what started it. So we got invited to come to, to the UK. And then while we were there, we hooked up with Daniel Miller from Mute Records and we started to, which Mark Stewart was signed to. And we did a song, some things for Mark. Then we hooked up with Jeff Travis from Rough Trade and we did a song for Shara Nelson, who then became the singer in Massive Attack, started doing some of these hustles real quick. Yeah. Then we were working out of Southern Studios uh, with John Loader, and uh, he had his own distribution network in, in, in there. So the idea was like, you know what? Let's cut. We let's cut some songs for ourselves. So we would record for some other artists, and then send the artists home, and then stay in the studio and pay the engineer a little bit more money, and then cut a record for ourselves at night. Yeah. Then we decided, why don't we take it a step further? Why don't we create our own label? So we created, like all within the first trip, so we created World Records. We, we, come up, we came up with a name called Fats Comet, because I think Haley's Comet was coming out at that time. We just, just combined like Fats Domino and Haley's Comet and came up with Fats Comet. Started cutting these real crazy-ass kind of like, you know, uh, 50s bop-bop doo-wop kind of like records where we would crash like... Um, you know, like Stormy Weather from one of the early doo-wop bands and sample that and then put our rhythm across it. And you know, Oh, cool. So we did some really, really yeah. interesting things, started our own label, and, we're, and, and, and it was exciting because, you know, it's things that you just couldn't do in America that quick. In England, you could pull things like that off because there's a, there's a, there's a system in play where yeah. you can do it if you know the right folks. So Adrian knew the right folks. John Loder knew the right folks. Next thing you know, boom, we're in England. We're recording. We started our own label. We put, we're putting out our own stuff, and now and now I'm going back to America with like, hey, this is you know here's here's what we're doing. So that was exciting. And then word caught that the rhythm section was the Sugar Hill rhythm section is, yeah. is in English. So now here comes Malcolm McLaren reaching out to us and other artists. So did you do? Did you did you dealt with Malcolm? McLaren? Oh yeah, how's yeah, that? That was that was that was. Malcolm, Malcolm, <laughs> we did it. Malcolm was great, you know. It was, but I'll tell you what, he did work our asses off, man. I mean, it was like we we thought we were gonna do a couple of songs, maybe, and he was, he's like, no, I got you guys for twenty four hours. I'm gonna get, <laughs> I'm gonna get the most out of you boys, and he did. But anyway, that you know, it was it was exciting because in England, you could do things um, that we couldn't we couldn't possibly pull off in America. So now we have a we have two different identities going on. We have this New York hip hop vibe, and also playing with other artists in New York. When we also did, 
worked with Arthur Baker. And from with Arthur, we did the Sun City Project, yeah. which, was, which had many artists on it, from Miles Davis to Bono to... That was a whole record, right? That was a, was whole, a whole album. Record. Like several songs, not same just the Same rhythm section, same Sugar Hill oh, really? rhythm section is the base of all Amazing. of that. Yeah. So now you have that going on. Now we have all the stuff that, you know, in what's happening in the UK, because now Keith's getting a call to work with ABC. I get, you know, we're working with Tim Simonon from Bomb the Bass. I, you know, next thing you know, I'm in, I'm, I'm at, I'm meeting Trevor Horn and I'm doing stuff with some of his artists at Sarm Studios. I'm working with Depeche Mode and, and Flood and different artists, you know, that, you know, engineers now turn producers. Then Keith and I are working with Annie Lennox doing the Diva record. So we started getting some really heavyweight Such accounts a, going on. Yeah. But we're still, are still, we're still doing all the On You Sound, Gary Clell. Tackhead sound system. We've created Tackheads. We're doing all these different things simultaneously, different tiers. And that's what was cool because somebody might have known about Tackhead but didn't know that we were doing Mark Stewart and the Mafia. Right, somebody right. might have known that we were doing the, the um, Sun City Project but didn't know Skip is working with Peter Wolf from that, for, you know, playing guitar or I'm working with um, Jeff Beck. Yeah. Or working with Mick Jagger. So yeah. the whole crew just started to expand, but always came back together as a unit. Wow. That's so cool. Did you, let me ask you this. Uh, there was, there's, there's a couple things you said that I wanted to stop you, but I, I can't stop you. It's because also Alex, it's so weird. Like Doug Wimbish is just sitting in my, sorry, just keep on saying it. Just stop me, man. Just, just no, 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 I'm not going to say that. Okay. I'm, Alex, fill up my score gun. Um, I saw some video of you doing something with the gold frap. Oh yeah, lady. And that, so there's there's that whole trip, that British kind of trip hop thing that you're a part of as well. Well, you know, yeah, you know, it's like uh, things just expanded. What you saw that I did with gold frap was this VPRO event that took place in Holland, and that was with Cheb Khalid, uh, um, um, and gold frap. I forgot the piano player players anyway i would get invited to into these different scenarios you know like the, where people would put people together and then put you know put you in a, a house for a week and come see what you come up with and then on the weekend you'd go do a concert at the at the uh paradisio in in, in amsterdam and then yeah. they film it then it would be on television you know at the right, same time right. so and that's kind of what you probably saw but the whole trip hop vibe again that's like rooted to Mark Stewart. Mark Stewart is the godfather of all of that stuff. Tricky. Yeah. What was um, Massive uh, Nelly Hooper? Nelly yeah, Hooper was Nelly was Hooper. all of that. All of that stuff. Those roads are Mark Stewart. He's the godfather, right? Yeah. For real. Yeah. And if you talk to any of those guys and ask, well, who was the inspiration from what they were listening to? It was Mark that was kind of bringing the the well to bringing those guys to the well. Yeah. And also on the other side of that, it's Adrian Sherwood because Adrian was in such a, Adrian was doing everything from the slits to like, um, to like crass to like, now he's doing, now he's doing tack it where you have the Sugar Hill rhythm section and, and, and he's mashing it up, just dubbing it crazy. But he's coming from working with Prince Farai or working with Asia, with um, African Head Charge or Ben right, Sherman right. Yeah. or Lee Scratch Perry. Like, and so on and so on. So he has this wealth of dub information in him. So between Mark Stewart and and Adrian, which we still work together to this day, you had such you had this real synergy that everybody appreciated and dug. Record labels were digging what was happening from Adrian. They were loving his remixes. They were digging Mark's lyrics. 
there were, you know, we didn't sell out. We just kind of like kept, you right. know, influencing people. Well, we kind of sold out with Tackett a little bit when we signed to, to one major label, but that was a bit of a that was that was a, a moment in time. But we also were able to um, parlay the the economics that we got from that deal to do other things. You yeah. know what I mean? But yeah, yeah. There's there's so much to your career to be so fluid and move through all of those things like that, like to play on you know these like Seal and uh, you, are you, that's you on the first Seal record. Yes. That's that's with Trevor Horn, right? Yes. Is that how you ended up getting yeah. that gig? Mm-hmm. I, I remember. By, I remember listening to that record when I got home from. Well, that crazy was originally cut on a Porter Studio Four track. When I met Seal, he was in. He was in the cracks. He was. He was just came off the heels of having that hit with a Damski, right? I don't know anything. About yeah, that. yeah. Pretty much um, killer. Okay. And um, then he got signed to ZTT because because that was a huge song over in the UK. And then and, and then he got signed to ZTT, which was Jill Sinclair and Trevor Horn's label. And then basically, when I met Seal, he was still squatting in London, poncho, sandals, real indigenous. And but we really hit it off because we we enjoyed a lot of the same music, you know. Yeah, like he he yeah. knew all these these kind of like really yeah. interesting songs that I like, like like the like like in time by Sly and the Family Stone. That's the one of my favorite record. songs, right? Yeah. Exactly, mine yeah. as well. So yeah. the fact that I have an Englishman that knew that and loved it, we, yeah. we hit it right off. So anyway. Then boom, we ended up cutting the demo. We heard the I heard the original demo. Then we cut. Then Tim Simonon put that together. So we ended up recording the, the you know the basis of what was going to be crazy. And then Trevor took that, chopped it up, and did his thing. So Jesus. that's what. I, and the first day I met Trevor, the first day I met Trevor, he came to listen to what we did. Right. So he came to see what was going on. And he's a bass player. And 45 minutes into the conversation, I swear to you, he's like, hey, man, what are you doing? I got a session going on at Sarm Studios. You want to come and play on it? I'm like, yeah. So next thing you know, I'm like in his BMW, and I'm at Sarm Studios recording for somebody else. I think it was for um, uh, those two twins. I can't, I'll think of it later. Anyway, it doesn't matter, man. It was just like I was with Trevor Horn. I'm cutting for somebody, and it's cool. Yeah. So things just happened. Yeah. That was a big record for Seal. Yeah. Well, I mean, things also just happen because you're, uh, you're amazing. Like, you are amazing. Like, I, I can't remember what the name of the song is that you played on, on Depeche Mode's Ultra, but like... I've, useless. I, I, useless. Yeah. I sent that to a couple of people and I was like, have you ever heard this? Like, I don't... I, I don't... I remember getting that record or maybe listening to that record, but I... Listening to that song and just what, what you're doing on that song is sick. You know, it's interesting because, see... A lot of times when I work with an artist, we talk first. But see, I've known, I knew Dave and, 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 and all of those guys from when I first went to England. When I first went there, they were just blowing up. Adrian mix, re, did a remix of People Are People. Okay. Adrian was involved. Oh, so early on. With, yeah, early yeah. on, like 84, right? Yeah. So I knew, I knew all of those guys. They were the first ones I met, and they had just started to elevate. I mean, just blowing up for real, right, when I met them. Fast forward, when I did useless now everybody's had a drink everybody's everybody's kind of head off now you know what i mean and they're they've elevated and now the 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 assistant engineer now is is the main engineer and producer you know when i when i when met flood he was an assistant engineer for other other cats yeah. and that's how things went down right i i used to be managed by this guy that was the drummer of this band called the silencers a scottish band it was the first band that flood 
produced. Okay. And and he told me how Flood got his name because in the in in the Britain you know this, but Alex might not, and the listeners might not. There's like a there's a there's a there's a path to becoming a producer, but there's a, like you start off at a place and you work your way up. That's just how it worked there, right? So you start off as a T boy. T boy. So apparently Flood was so shaky as a T-boy that he would show up with the T-tray and there'd be tea all over the place. They started calling him Flood. There you have it. Because you had to, you had to, you look, you had to be able to go get the beers. Yeah. You had to be a T-boy. Yeah. You're the first one in there and the last one to leave. Yeah. And you're hearing everybody's complaints while you're there. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So, and if you could stay cool, because Flood was mad chilled out. You know what I'm saying? He's, he's pretty chill. So it's perfect for him. But again... It's like Useless was a song that was just like, yo, we just get in there, start chopping, let me hear it. Those songs were cut very, very quick because it didn't require much. Of, it just required the right frequency. Those bass lines were like just, they wrote themselves almost like, you know, what yeah. do you need? How do you feel? Okay, what's this sound like? Let's go. Press record. Yeah. It's, it, it's interesting because um, I was thinking this, Yes, not yesterday. A couple of days ago, when I started digging into the like the last two uh, uh, shade and who shot you, uh, living color records, I just like that thing about how you you're supposed to get better as you get older. But we live in this in this we're in a weird business that that um, almost fetishizes <laughs> youth. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. In yeah. a way, but it discards these these the guys as they get older. When I heard even just the song "Who Shot You," like the first song on that record, you're just like, "God damn!" Like these guys are still like balls to the wall, like oh, yeah. like coming out swinging. And Corey, I like I can't like his voice is just unbelievable. Corey's voice right. is better now than it's ever been. Yeah, everybody's better now than it's yeah, ever been. Pound for pound, we're one of the best bands on the planet, and I'm not. And it's just from the heart because you know everybody's put the time and we've done the work. Yeah. We've done the work, and then we, and then we, 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 you know, every time we hit the stage, we're not okay. We're, we're, it's, it's about that moment. Every moment is fresh. We're not a band that rehearses a lot. You know, if you've been together for over thirty years, Jesus Christ, if you don't know what to do by now to play some songs, you know, what's going on? So that that freshness of us getting on stage, maybe we'll go over some stuff at a sound check, is what keeps things explosive so everything that happens now is done pretty much on stage so if will does something or something appears or Corey does something or vernon does something we remember it and then we'll because it's happened live we'll watch the crowd and then we incorporate it into the arrangement of the songs and then that gives us the capability of being able to when we go back in the studio we're not necessarily restricted into coming up with like this is what things need to be we, we play until it's right, and then we go down to the wire. If something isn't right, we just go, wait a minute, we'll go back, we'll do this. We'll, we'll keep going until things feel right. When it's right, that's when it's done. Yeah. But it's not like scripted. It's not like this, okay, we're going to get, we're going to go in, do pre-production, then we're going to rehearse the songs and blah, 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 blah. Right, right. Then you're gonna do, by the time you've done that, the earth has changed. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Things, are, things have already moved around a little bit, yeah. and like other things have happened. So we just, fort- I mean, fortunately for us, because we're mates and we're competitive against each other to a certain degree to keep each, each other in check. So like, you know, and because we're able to explore sounds, Will has a lot of stuff. He's got a lot of electronics that he's doing. Will, Vernon has a lot of stuff. I have a lot of stuff. We can just explore. We're not tied down to like, well, the guitar player has to play this way 
And I and Doug, you can't cross over that line in the sand. You know, you got to just play this kind of way. We've right. found our own personalities that can play out in the world of living color, which is beautiful, which is beautiful. And that's the one good thing that that I like. You know, so every year we just evolve. We evolve. But when we get on stage, uh, uh-uh, it's game over, mate. When we play live, all the bands, you know. All the bands are checking us out in the side of the state. We have we come with fire and game, and I'm not saying oh, yeah, that as you do. I'm not saying that as like some you know some bold statement. I'm just saying I'm proud to say that I'm proud that we still have our facilities, and I'm proud that we've been a band that has that everybody still has that fire. Corey sounds better than he's ever sounded ever. That's unbelievable. Yeah, he hits some notes. I can't even remember what they're like. Where I was just dude. Like, Where's that even coming from? It's like Rob Halford, even higher than like Dude, Rob. It's unbelievable. Yeah. I don't, you know, he's Corey's just an active god. We just played rock and reel. Uh, Stevie Vai joined us on stage, and and when he's in rehearsals, he's just like Jesus Christ, Corey, what is going on? You sound. He's Corey. Yeah. Just sounds amazing. So when you have that front man that has that drive. You don't, you don't have to change. Corey's never like, can you take the key down for me to sing? <laughs> no, ever. Not once, yeah. ever. Yeah. So I'm thankful that with Living Color is we're still here, knock on wood. Yeah. We've been in the game. We, we, it's no, it's no, no compromise, no sellout, man. You know, we just, we're like, you know what, let's go. It's time to go on stage. We don't mind showing anybody anything, but we are, we are having fun. Yeah. If we make a mistake, we're going to do it twice. They're going to call it jazz anyway. So we don't really care. <laughs> it's, not, it's not about perfection. Life isn't made like that. It's, about, it's all about the bumps and bruises. Yeah. And, and it's about how you recover. So that's what makes this thing. Look at the world. It's like that, man. It's kind of like you got to have a little bit of, got to have some thunderstorms kicking in every now and then. And yeah. Keep it going. What a, what a great version of Cult of Personality that, that you guys released from that rock and Rio thing. Yeah, well, thanks, man. You know, that was done specifically for the South American market. It was done for Rock and Rio. You know, it was a great opportunity for us to play the Sunset Stage in front of 100,000 people. That was my first gig with Living Color was 1992 at Hollywood Rock, which is the same sponsors of, you know, Rock Rock and and Rio. And again, it was now my 30th anniversary with the band is this year. So to be able to be there again. On that stage, still bringing the fire. Yeah, people still enjoying it, young and old, is 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 a sign of a true champagne. Yeah. yeah. And not to take over the, the two things I'm interested in, since you're going, since you're going back to you know the living color beginning of it, but it's, it's, I'm interested in a before we in, in the interview is a you know your work with Mick Jagger and then how that parlayed possibly into living color and then you're also here to talk about Wimbash, which is a festival. Okay. I'll make that quick. So thank um, you, Alex. So I'll try. I was going to get to that, but let me just ask you this one quick question before we leave this. And it has to do with the Mick Jagger thing. Yep. Uh, Were you offered this gig and then you were offered some other giant gig and also living color? Yes. And then you took living color. Because you yeah. wanted to be in a band. Well, it's a, see, it's, it, you, it's sort of you're right, but it's a, it's how it's how it's all put together, and that's kind of what. Yeah. Um, that's kind of what we're talking about. So, okay. Um, Talk about the Mick Jagger thing, and then Mick you can Jagger started like this. I was working with Jeff Beck, mm-hmm. finished, did a tour with him, Simon, <laughs> with Simon Phillips and Jan Hammer, went off to Japan, did a, did a, did some concerts with Santana. Buddy Miles was singing with Santana at that time. Fresh off the California Raisins vibe. Steve Lukather was artist in residence. 
So we so that was the that I was the him. first big gig. So now after that tour, went to Japan. Play, and after that tour, Jimmy Hall was singing with us. So after that tour, we um, uh, asked Jeff, "What is he doing when he gets back?" He said, "Hey man, I'm going to be doing the next Mick Jagger solo record." He said, "By the way, they're going to be um, they're doing some auditions. You mind if I throw your name into the hat?" Sure. So then, fast forward, um, I, about a week or so later. I find myself at Unique Studios with the producer, Keith Diamond, who produced Caribbean Queen. He's currently producing, um, 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 uh, Jesus, how can I forget his name? Uh, Michael Bolton. Okay. Okay. Oh, yeah, yeah. So, okay. Anyway, so it's Michael Bolton, right? So anyway, now Keith gets the call to produce Mick Jagger's solo record. And he's like, hey, Doug, man, you know, um. I just got the call. Would you like to audition for Mick Jagger's solo band? I said, sure. So anyway, I get the call. It's a cattle call. They auditioned 40 bass players between New York, L.A., and London. Also, they were auditioning guitar players. So Vernon was part of that cattle call, New York cattle call as well. I ended up getting the gig. Vernon didn't get the gig. So now here we are. First week, SIR rehearsals. Um... Mick comes up to me, you know, he's, and he's, we're chopping it up. And, you know, Vernon, he, you know, Vernon's band was, you know, Living Colors playing around town. So Mick comes up to me and says, hey, Dougie, Vernon's band, Living Color, you know, have you seen them? I said, yeah, man. I said, how are they? I said, they're really good. Matter of fact, they're playing at CBGB's. Why don't you and Jeff go check them out? So they, so they did. They went down to go, they just happened to be playing at CBGB's like the next night. So they went to go see Living Color. Then Living Color knew they were coming there. They're all nervous and stuff. <laughs> Running told me later. So anyway, Mick comes back the next day. It's like, Dougie, I really like the band. What do you think I should do? I'm like, dude, you're freaking Mick Jagger, man. You, you know, you bust out all these blues cats. Fucking take him in the studio, do something with him. And right there, he was like, Ed Stasium had to be the, happened to be the engineer at that time. And it's, it's, you know, it started, a, it started, it's, so basically Mick took Living Color in the studio mm-hmm. to do a couple of demos. And it was Ed Stacy and Ron St. Germain was part of that whole vibe as well. I'm not sure. I think Ron might have done some stuff first just based on availability or whatever. But anyway, he took Living Color in and did a couple of demos. And that's what started. So now fast forward, took Mick a while to get the band signed. He ends up getting the band signed and then... So now I'm do I do this I, do, I finish my run with Mick Jagger. Now it's 1989. The Stones are coming back out. Boom! He takes Living Color on the road. Yeah. They open up for the Stones. So there's that whole vibe. Now fast forward. Now it's 1991. I'm in L.A. I'm producing a band called the Booyah Tribe. Uh-huh. Samoan rappers, and it was cool. So I'm, I'm at Crystal Studios, and Living Color happens to be in town. I was bringing in different players that were their Sly Stones on the record. George Clinton came in. Shit. Um. Um. We were the first, We did one song that had um, Ice Cube, Ice T, King T, and Kid Frost on it. It was, you know, I just want to celebrate by Rare Earth. The record had a lot of controversy connected to it. it was It was supposed to come out on Hollywood Records with Kim Bowie, but there was some stuff that took that shelved the record anyway. It was there that I got living. You know, I got Vernon Reed and Corey Glover to come in the studio. Okay, cool. They recorded. That was cool. Fast forward right after then that. I, about not even a month later, I'm in London. I'm at I'm at Olympic Studios with the Stones. We're in a room sitting down watching 25 times five, uh, 25 years of Rolling Stones. <laughs> I got Mick on one side, and Keith on the other side, and they're looking at each other. Looking, it's a classic, and they're like, you know, they're just they're, they're going back and forth at each other of uh, what was going on. The phone rings. It's Will Calhoun. He calls me up and he says, 
hey man, I'm coming to London to do a clinic, but also we're doing a, we're doing a change, you know, uh, you know, for bass, you know, would you mind coming in and audition? I mean, I want you to do the gig, but fairness coming in and audition. I'm with the Stones. So I let them know, hey man, I just got a call from Will, man. They want me to come and audition. They say, yo man, that's great, Dougie Charlie's like, yo, cool, cool, cool. Go to New York, do the audition. They had one gig that was on the book still, which was the Hollywood Rock Festival. Right. This is this is like October 31st. It was Halloween 1991. So, um, so I do the audition. Cool. The, I, they asked what song I want to play first. I said, let's play Time's Up. I hear silence. <laughs> I'm like, what's going on? I say it's wrong. He said, nobody else wanted to play Time's Up. So I always pick the hardest songs. To, yeah. You know, let's do it. So I knocked it out. Get, said, okay, we'll get you to do, would you mind doing Hollywood Rock with us? Sure. Still wasn't offered the gig. Yeah. So do Hollywood Rock. Do that, then that, that night I got offered the gig. So there's that vibe. Now I'm doing the record with Living Color. We, it's 92, 93, Stain comes out. So now I'm still working with folks. I'm still doing Annie Lennox with the uh, Diva record. I'm still, do, I'm still recording with all my mates in London, Gary Clay, On You Sound, whatever. So now I just did Ronnie Wood's record. I'm in, in County Kildare in, in Ireland. I still have my amplifier there from a few months before. So. Bill Wyman leaves the band. Mick calls me up. Dougie, um, you mind coming out to we have you know coming out with the fellas out of Woody's house? Cool. So I fly out. Was happening. So I fly out there, go to Ireland, and I'd already worked with Ronnie and Charlie. I worked with Charlie at Mick's Chateau when Charlie hadn't been playing in a while. Mick was like, "Hey, play with Charlie a little bit, do some stuff." And, oh my God, what was that uh, like? That was great. That was great. So anyway, I could I could okay, go on. That's a whole this guy has to be in a few parts, but it's hard <laughs> to kind of like break the career down into these things. But anyway, to move it along, then we cut a bunch of songs, come back. Mick is like, "Hey, Dougie, we want you to do the record." I'm like, "Cool." So he's like, "Um, well, when is the record gonna be? You know, I'm just gotten Living Color. We're going to Australia." I'm like, "Well, when is uh, when is that gonna happen?" Well, it's going to happen um, this date. And it, it conflicted with the Living Color Tour. So I said, okay, well, you know what? Out of fairness, talk to Vernon. Have a conversation with him. See if, he, if it's all right with him. So, because um, Mick was going, basically Mick was going to buy the band out so I could actually do the Stones record. He was like, how much is it going to cost for you to get you there? Mick was, I got, Jesus. you know, seriously. There's no sense in me bullshitting here. So I'm like, okay, so why don't you have a conversation with, um, Living, Vernon, and at that time, Vernon was going through a bit of a thing. He's going through a divorce. He's doing some other stuff, so he's, he wasn't in a good place. So he talks to Mick, and he's kind of like, no, we got to do this tour in Australia, blah, 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 blah. So Mick is like, you know what? I don't know. How am I going to interfere? I, you know, I, I, I yeah. introduced Mick yeah, yeah. to Living Color. <laughs> Next thing I end up in Living Color. Stones are cool with it. Now yeah. the Stones are trying to get me to do their record. It wasn't like, it was just the record. It wasn't like, you know, a permanent, like you're going to be joining the band or anything. So I'm loyal. I'm a 25% yeah. member of Living Color. Yeah, exactly right. There you go. Yeah. And that's just what took place. Yeah. I did Primitive Cool yeah. would make his solo record. Then I did, um, uh, I listened to that today. It's a yeah, really good I did, record. I did Bridges to Babylon, a couple yeah. of songs on that. And I did Sweet Thing on Mick's second solo record, yeah. which is kind of dope. And um, so anyway, one thing led to another. And then what, what took place was like a year later, Vernon decides to break the band up. So basically, they had, so because I didn't do it, then Daryl was they had already auditioned. I guess Daryl was already in the mix of the name that Daryl got the gig. Yeah. 
He's good. Which is the best man for the job at the, at that particular time because it was obviously there was a lot of stuff going on and it was like okay I'm coming from mixed camp and then Keith's got his camp and then they yeah. got their friction going on so it's best that you find somebody neutral to be a part of that in all fairness. Yeah. Are you friends with Guy Pratt? Oh, very good friends with Guy Pratt. Seem like you would be. Of course. In a good way. I can't I didn't, I didn't mean that in a bad way. I, well, when we were on the road, when we were on the road with Jagger, when we went to Australia, we were all, Guy Pratt was out with Pink Floyd. We were all there at right. the same time. So we were all staying at the Siebel Townhouse. I feel like Guy just hangs out with amazing bass players. He does. We used to hang out at a club <laughs> called The Cauldron all night. So we, yeah. we've, we've, we, let's just say um, we have had some very good times. I bet you have. Yeah. yeah. Very good times. Okay, so uh, let's talk about this Wimbash. You've been doing this like you 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 don't just do one show a year. It's well, I, like a series. It's it's it, it 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 it's yeah. I guess you could say that it, it's like it's like really like when things when I could actually align to make, get the alignments and find the the purpose and cause in the right cities to go to where where there's a good buzz and something going on. So really, the Wimbash is like the backstory of it is this: the Wimbash started with with um just an awakening for me. Um, I had lived in London for a while, came back home, to, and I'm from Connecticut, and I'd been in London for a long time. So came back to Connecticut, and then I, st- I was mo- li- living in an art space building. My next door neighbor was a guitar player. I'd hear him play, and I'm like, hey, man, it sound pretty good. What are you doing? What are you, pl- what are you playing? He said, well, I'm playing at this club called Sully's. Man, why don't you come and check me out? I went to Sully's, which is your classic mom and pop club, been in the community for 40 years, Sully's and Lena's Pizza, you know, like a real cheers kind of vibe. There's a guy that's at the corner bar, has been there for 900 years, that kind of vibe. But he had live music seven days a week. So I meet the owner, Daryl Sullivan, and he knows who I am. He's like, hey, Doug, man, I'm glad, you know, nice to meet you. Look, man, if you ever want to do something, my place is your place. Cool. So I started to go to his club and see other bands playing, some young bands, some really good talent. I was like, wow, this is really cool. And he was diverse. He always had his door open 365 days a year, seven days a week. And I was impressed that a human being was, <laughs> a club owner was doing that. <clears throat> you know, really struck me. Uh, it really hit me ha- to my heart. So anyway, now I have my friend Skip McDonald, who's still over in the UK, hadn't been home in years. So I'm like, man, I got to give Skip a, you know, everybody, every, when I came back home, everybody's asking where Skip is at. So I'm like, I got to give him a party. Now, I would go to Guitar Center when I got back and I would see friends that I grew up with. We'd play together and, and they, you know, hadn't seen him in 30 years. And guys would be like, we strike up a conversation. I see he has his guitar out at Guitar Center. It's all nice and shiny. He might be working in insurance right now. So we'd say, hey, man, what happened to your band? Oh, we broke up years ago. Well, where's Sonny? Well, Sonny died. What happened to uh, the newbie? Oh, newbie's been in jail for years. You didn't know? I'm like, Jesus Christ, I'm afraid to say anything else. <laughs> so what are you doing? I'm playing in church. There's no bands to play with. Yeah. Said, Damn. So it really hit me. So I said, you know what? I saw these young kids. I wanted to give my friend a coming home party. I said, let's do it at, let's do it at Sully's. Let me, let, okay, let's, and then let's bring some young kids so that they can play on stage as well. And then... The kid, the, the folks that I would meet, drummers, guitar players, met so many folks that weren't playing anymore. I called each one of them up and I said, look, here's 10 songs. So y'all figure out, you know, I'm having a party. It's going to be a coming home, you know, just a gathering for, you know, you know, at Sully's. Skip's going to be here. Here's 10 songs. Drummer, we'll let, y'all figure it out. Let you, you know, we'll figure out maybe five of those songs y'all could play. So everybody came 
everybody was able to come and play. I got the young kids playing, and then I got the young kids on stage with some of the elders because they wanted to play on some of those songs as yeah. well. Yeah. So that's kind of how it all really kind of started. It started really just community, and then it built out. Yeah. So then the next phase was it went so well, people were like, can you do it again? Okay. So then now the place has like an outdoor tiki bar, you know, uh, two places where you can actually have bands playing. And, you know, anyway, so I said, okay. I hooked up with the School of Rock out of Fort Wayne, Pennsylvania, and I became like an ambassador to those guys. So I said, you know what? I'm going to have another Wimbash in Hartford. And let's, let me, I went down to the School of Rock and played with the kids, did some workshops with them, really hit it off with them, had a great time. And then I, and I said, you know, it'd be good for the kids to have a road trip. So I got them to come up to Hartford, School of Rock, Fort Wayne, uh, Fort Washington, to be a part of the Wimbash. Got some more of the local kids that were there to play. And then also at that time, I, you know, Living Color, some of the guys from Living Color came to, to join in. Still got some more of the elders. And then I created a workshop at that time. So I set up an environment where there was like a recording studio in one of the rooms, and I was had the School of Rock kids there, and I was like, I said, okay, we're gonna we're gonna do something special. How many drummers in the house? You on drums? You guitar player, bass? Within a minute, I had a rhythm section on. I said, pl- I played a click, and I said, okay, who's gonna keep the time in the band? They said the drummer. No, we're all gonna keep the time. So I got the whole room to start clapping, and then while the room is clapping, I press record, and I started giving the drummer a beat. All within minutes, like play this beat, play that, get bass player, play this, guitar player, play that. So within like five minutes, I was able to have a band that was the kids that were sitting down on their iPhone probably on stage recording and then they're listening to themselves. They're listening to the playback in like five minutes. Yeah. Then got more folks to overdub on top of it. So that was that vibe. That component took place. Then the same day, there's workshops going on where you could take you know, class, a lesson with Vernon t- teaching about his pedal board or Will Calhoun or right. Corey or whatever. But I invited my accountant, who's a guitar player, Alan Friedman, to come in and talk to the kids about economics, yeah. about, you know, finances and money and what are you doing? And, you know, you're, now you're past the piggy bank mode. What are you going to do? You know, how do you want to go to the next yeah. level and deal with stuff? And my lawyer, Ron Beanstock, who's a bass player, they're all active. Get him to come in, ask questions. Talk to him about, you know, okay, I write a song. How do I, how do I get paid? How do I register the song? As opposed to having myths, awesome. you're having real people that are, that are yeah. players. Yeah. And a lawyer and an accountant ask them some questions, get the real answers, write some stuff down, take some notes, and we can review this stuff later. So if you're writing a song, how do you deal with it? If you're writing a song with other people, how do you find a way how to, you know, how to come to some terms because right. musicians will just play until oh it's going to be all right yeah, yeah and then yeah, yeah. <laughs> then 10 years later they realize they wrote a song that they should have got credit yeah. on and they're sitting with this frequency in their head for 10 years now mental health kicks in yeah. and it's game over yeah so try to supply not only have that but also invite um senior citizens so that they could be a part of the the Wimbash just right. to come and hang out you know, and then we also started to get gear. We would donate gear to different organizations that needed it. We'd find that Mr. Johnson that's in the community that's giving piano lessons every weekend or maybe driving the kids to football practice. What does he need? What can we do to help him out? You need some money for gas or whatever. Then there's the teachers that might be a piano teacher and, you know, maybe, maybe the piano needs tuning or whatever. What can we do to help her out? Because she's the person on the front line of the community that's really yeah. helping the kids on the weekend. So find those heroes 
gather, get them some gear, and then we'd find ways to get, give instruments to some folks that really need them. And as we would gift instruments to different people, like a guitar, we'd, we'd monitor them and see if they're still playing it a year, month later. Right. And if they are, now it's time for you to go play at an old folks' home and, and give, give, play, for, play, you know, play for some folks there. Phenomenal. You know what I mean? Do some yeah. yard work. Yeah. Go at a veteran's home and play there. So you teach the kids natural ways to communicate and just be able to appreciate, but to give back. And that's, it's just community. We all learn from somebody else. Somebody paved the road for all of us. Why can't the elders be there chilling out with a, with a lemonade and yeah. watch the young kids doing their thing? And then the key is really, man, is when you have... When you have the kids, and then I might have some friends, like I said, that just got off a Learjet or come to the window. Yeah, Doug, I'm going to come and make it. They might still be hungover, <laughs> you know, a little yeah. bit. Then they come, and then they see the kids. They sober right up, and then there's no ego. Yeah. If I had bands that were all similar, the first thing they're going to do is start, hey, I need special attention, man. Yo, you know, it starts to get into that world. But when yeah. you have kids, yeah. it just neutralizes everything. Yeah. So it's just about the evolution, keeping the folklore going on. Let the kids talk to the elders about what was taking place in their time. What do they like? Let them play on stage with each other. Get information from a professional yeah. about finances, about money. What can you do? Yeah. And then follow up on it. Go to their website. Ask yeah. them some questions and find a hero in your community and, and share that information with them. That's awesome. So glad to know that. That's it. I mean, it's a lot of what we do at Austin Music Foundation. Uh, not able to get the instruments to kids and stuff, but we focus more like with musicians trying to break into the scene or whatever. But those things are really important. You know? It's very important to be able to support your where you where you you know look this is where you're from, man. Yeah. You know, not just don't don't just throw money at the situation. Give them your time. Yeah. Take you know take your take the time to be able to help somebody, and it's not just young musicians. It's older folk. Right now we're dealing with people that are. Like, you know, they don't have any bands. They're older. They have, they have issues. And they paved the road for us. You can't leave them out in, in yeah. a limb. What are we doing to help them? Exactly. So my vibe is bring everybody together so that kid can see, you know what, if you're lucky enough, you're going to be, you're going to live to be that as old as this lovely woman here. And she paved the road for all of us. Yeah. You know, you can, you, you know, however you want to process that, that's on you. Yeah. You know, but you, but if you're together, you can see it. You can start to be, you know, you become more comfortable if you start to have more events. And you start seeing the same faces. So you're like, hey, man, Uncle Dougie, where's the old, where's the harmonica player? He's about 70 years old. Is yeah. he going to be coming to the gig? Yeah. And these are the young kids, you know what I mean? They might be 15. Yeah. Man, I can't wait to play with him again. That's making things happen. Yeah, it's amazing. That's making things happen. People can find that at wimbash.org. They yeah. can find you at dougwimbish.com. Dougwimbish.com. And uh, Big living. Question, is it Wimbash Austin? Oh, yeah. 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 Well, you know, we, you know, thankfully. We're old now. Yeah. Thankfully, because of <laughs> a Bevis. Yeah. And, and, you know, and Alex and everybody was, and Bob from, you know, from, a, you know, from School of Rock. We're, things, to, again, started by a spark, just us getting together. Bevis is like, I got some folks here. You might, you know, you're doing the wind bash. It'd be good if you can do one down here. I yeah. got some folks. Let me introduce you to them. Yeah. So a couple of meetings. Next thing you know, we get some ideas. He's like, hey, man, why don't you, why don't you come down? We'll do like a, a, a couple of things at, the, at Round Rock, one thing at Round Rock and one thing today. And then we'll have some meetings with different like-minded people like yourself and get to know the community, have some, have some conversations. But I'm very, I'm very keen on bringing 
our, you know, just what 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 I, what I'm a part of with my with my wife Diane to this community to be able to work with everybody here. You know yeah. what I mean? And maybe yeah. be able. It would be good to bring all these organizations together under one day, one umbrella to do an event. You know what I mean? I see there's a lot of different organizations here. It'd be great to if we could have one day to maybe bring some of these organizations together here with the kids to do a win bash with everybody's brand. You yeah. know what I mean? Everybody's, yeah. you got your brand. Yeah. Alex has his brand. Yeah. Put them all together. <coughs> Get the grill out. Let's have some fun. Yeah. Yeah, let's do that. <laughs> I'm 100% behind it. Um, do you, uh, Living Color didn't have anything on the books. You guys just played Halloween, right? We just played Halloween at the City Winery. We're in the process of making a new record right now. We have some other special sauce that's in the mix that hopefully we'll get we'll get we'll hit the airwaves or or the or the news will will come up. But we're in the process of really reshaping and just you know look we're at that point. We're doing another record. We have another cycle coming out, and we want to be able to capture this with an audio visual experience. Put that out there to the people. Awesome. So stay tuned. Well, good man. That's exciting. Yeah. Uh, you guys are sounding better than ever. Those live records, I suggest people get out there and check them out. And your last records, I mean, I know what happens is people connect with the band and then sometimes you go off into some other thing. You go up your own, you know, and you're down your own lane and you don't like coming, like getting to, like, I'm glad that Alex uh, got us together, not only to do this podcast, but because I was reintroduced to Living Color in a way that I haven't been in a long time. Like, it, it took me back to the first time I got in my friend Dave Lentz's car by the way, he's probably listening to this and is going to be very excited that I mentioned his live? name to you. No. Okay, anyway. um, uh, but uh, he, he, the first song I heard was uh, What's Your Favorite Color? And he played it for me because we were starting a funk band, which was this band in 1988. Well, let's have a look. Oh, yeah, please. I want you to enjoy that because it's pretty funny. Yeah. I know. I bet y'all were getting it in too, weren't you? We were. Uh, <laughs> we became very popular. Uh, anyway, it was, it was like musically, it's like whatever you look back on and you're like, Oh God, I hope no one ever hears this. That dude, that's one of the things I'm so glad like SoundCloud and shit like that wasn't around. Like when I had that band, cause you can, you can erase stuff from back then. (laughs) Anyway, um, uh, getting reintroduced to, to the music and, and just like hearing you guys play together. It's so inspiring, like so inspiring. And, and just your, your, uh, your, uh, your musical fluidity, like to be a guy that played on on an Al Green record and and KMF DM and Depeche Mode. You did like, your research. Yeah, I, the fact that you did KF, KMF DM and and Depeche Mode. I, just, I don't know if the people out there listening know it. KMF DM is Kill Motherfucking Depeche Mode. Yeah. And you played on Depeche <laughs> Mode's album. <laughs> so, Sasha. Yeah. <laughs> oh, Lord, man. We did one song recently called Piggy, which is real, real classic, man. It's just, I love Sasha's work. Yeah, But, you know, my whole vibe is this, man. It's like, look, when I came up, I was around, you know, I, I, was, I was around people that wouldn't want to work with other folk. You know what I mean? There's musicians that were like, I'm a right. rock player. I'm not going to play anything yeah. else with that. You know what I mean? Matter of fact, why are you doing anything else? You shouldn't. Don't do that. Yeah. You know what I mean? And, 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 and my whole vibe always was, I just want to, I want to play and not get, I don't, I don't want to get tangled up by the musical police officers. I don't really mm-hmm. care. Everybody has a choice to do what they want to do. I learned by playing with different people. Yeah. Every day at All Platinum was an exam at Berkeley. Trust me. Yeah. It, was, it was pop quizzes all the time. I learned by being patient. I learned by accepting gigs that other folks wouldn't. 
I learned by listening to to the T boy. What do you think about something? Yeah. I listen to everybody. So anyway, my whole vibe has been over the years. I've been, I've, I've, that's just been it. I'm not. I don't. I never got trapped into one vibe. And it, and it wasn't like I'm set out to play with everybody. No, I just I just set out to live. I just wanted to live every day and be able to play play music with with, with freely and learn from the different people I'm playing with. Whether I'm playing with, you know, um, it, it's, you know, I, I can go. I can go. I don't even know where to yeah. start, man. It's yeah. just you know, gospel singers or this. I just play. I've been fortunate now. I can look back and go. You know what? Thankfully, I I was able to listen and and say yes to. Yeah to things as opposed to saying no out of fear. Because what, pe- what people do is, look, I've, I've tried to find ways to be in situations where I'm not, un- where I'm not comfortable. Yeah. Very un- I'm, but I'm not uncomfortable. The only way you're uncomfortable if, if, is if you don't do the work. Yeah, that's what so, keeps you growing, man. That's what keeps you growing. So if I'm given an opportunity to be with somebody, play with like Taria, for example, which is a symphonic metal artist and post-lead singer with Nightwish, nobody knows who Nightwish, some folks don't know who Night- Nightwish is. But other folks know exactly who Nightwish is. So I'm thankful to be able to have these opportunities to play with artists that are diverse, doing different, to me, that are great artists, and I like them. And somebody else might be like, I can't stand that. I, can't, I don't like this. That's right, right. That's fine. But I like it, and, it's get, and, and now it's given me a, uh, 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 the opportunity to learn from each one of those things. And now if you look at my repertoire or the, the discography, I don't even look at it. My wife had to put that together. I've forgotten about most, most of the people I work with. She was like, no. She went down the list and found all of these artists. And I was like, Jesus, I forgot all about uh, certain artists, you know, Erasure or, uh, you know, it's, it's just been. <laughs> That's so awesome. You know, the, most people will talk about, oh, yeah, I work with this artist. I'm like, uh, it's just, I'm just thankful that I, that I yeah. was able to keep up to 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 my to my to my to my heart first and that's it yeah that's it all right it's not about money it's about it's play the music you can you could shows in your playing yeah. it shows in 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 your character as well dude i cannot thank you enough for coming here and doing You're this welcome, and man. and i look forward to meeting you again sometime alex thank you so thank much you. shout out to school of rock for doing such great work i have a cousin of special needs who's in the school of rock in dallas and okay. uh and 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 my uh, his dad, my cousin, who's my age, is is like over the moon of what what being able to play music has done for his son and brought yeah, him out of his great. shell and all that stuff. That's so, great. So it's it's great. Well, that's why we're here, man. Let's support the next yeah. generation. Thank you, man. Thank you, guys. Appreciate it. Yeah. Doug Wimbish. What did I tell you, dude? That guy is amazing. Find him at DougWimbish.com. You can find Wimbash at Wimbash.org. You can find Living Color at LivingColor.com. I want to thank Alex and Bevis for, for, getting, uh, for getting Doug on the show. It was really great talking to him. So inspiring. And uh, I hope you guys all have a really great Thanksgiving week. Right? It's Thanksgiving week. You're getting ready for it, aren't you? Aren't you? All right, gang, have a great, great uh, Thanksgiving. Happy Thanksgiving. I want to thank Doug for doing the show. Don't forget when you're out there checking out How Did I Get Here, you can subscribe wherever it is that you find podcasts. Every Tuesday, every Friday, and Saturdays, we drop a From the Vault episode. A lot of Friday, uh, a lot of Saturdays. I don't even announce them. Just be surprised. Every once in a while, you'll see an old conversation with, with me and somebody else. All right? Happy Thanksgiving, everyone. Let's get down.
Can do for you.